0: None of us are perfect. That's not what I'm talking about. But to live our lives in such a way that people can see that we are indeed aliens upon the planet. We don't belong here. This is not our home. We're passing through. We're on our way to Christ. So thank you for those of you who remembered. Uh, I appreciate it. Psalm 114. I, I looked at it and I thought, Lord, sure you don't want me to preach Psalm 114. Um but then I understood why. Last week, we saw God as judge. This week, we see God as Savior. That's why Psalm 114. And we'll develop that as we move through the message. I think tonight I want to start with three quotes. I know that's a lot. I don't normally... Start with three quotes from some guy. Um, But as I thought deeply and prayed about Psalm 114, these these quotes kept bubbling up into my mind. So I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis. You guys, most of you know who C.S. Lewis is. He's a a famous 20th century English author and apologist. So, um, again, as I was studying the psalm this week, I kept thinking of these quotes. These are worldview quotes. These are big big picture paradigm quotes, okay? From maybe one of the most brilliant men of the 20th century. And he pulled all of these out of... All of these are coming off... I want to make sure you understand. All of these are coming off Scripture. Now they're either explicit truths from Scripture or implicit truths from Scripture. First, regarding evil pain, suffering, calamity, and death in the world, which I get this question a lot, as you might suspect as a pastor. And I'm sure if you're out in the world and you claim to be a Christian, you get this question a lot. Well, why is there evil in the world if God is good? I'm sure you get this all the time. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his remarkable way, he boils it down to about eight words. He says, these come from the abuse of free will. Now, if we know our Bibles, we understand what he's talking about. Right? Right? We understand it. That that's the exact explanation for why the world's messed up. It's not because God's messed up. It's because we messed it up. We messed it up, and we're messed up. Okay, this is a big picture paradigm thing, right? It's what the Bible clearly says. We abuse the free will that God gave us. Amen? God put us in paradise with free will And one prohibition. Everything, I love to say it this way, everything north, south, east, and west of the tree, it was ours. One prohibition. Well, we couldn't stand it. We couldn't stand that God told us that we couldn't have one thing. We abused our free will. That's why the world is the way the world is. Secondly regarding human happiness in this messed up world. I love how Lewis talks about it. He says, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from Himself because it's not there. There's no such thing. Don't you love that? Isn't that simple? Isn't that simple to say to the unbeliever or to the nominal Christian? You're trying to find happiness that's not there. It's not there apart from God. It's why the world is chasing after every conceivable, imaginable sin to try to make themselves happy. To try to satisfy their own soul. C.S. Lewis is exactly right. You can't! You never will be able to satisfy your soul. As I say to you all the time, God put eternity in our soul. And there's nothing in the world that's ever going to fill you up. Only God there is no happiness apart from God. Hell will be full of people who wasted their lives trying to find happiness apart from God. C.S. Lewis is right. It is not there. It does not exist. Thirdly, and lastly, Lewis' comment about this, uh, the biblical worldview, um, he's basically saying there's no other worldview that comes close to the biblical worldview. Now, some of you have lived uh, a number of years. You already, you, you've come to understand this. There's no other worldview that connects all the dots. Like the biblical worldview, it actually connects all of the dots. It makes sense with what we see in the world and what we feel in here and what we know to be true. It actually makes sense since Now, if you don't believe me, all I can do is challenge you to do your own homework. I can't do your homework for you. If you don't think I'm right, you have to do the homework. You have to go look at the other worldviews. But I want to tell you that the biblical worldview, it logically, rationally, empirically, intellectually, aesthetically, and spiritually connects the dots like no other worldview. This is what Lewis says, and then we'll move on. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Amen. By the truth of Scripture, not only do I see the glory of Christ, but by the glory of Christ, the whole world makes sense to me. By the biblical message, the whole world makes sense to me. Even though I have 10,000 questions, we all have 10,000 questions. God doesn't answer all our questions, does He? God will not be held to account. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, give a full accounting to all of His creatures. But you can connect the dots with the biblical worldview. So, what is Lewis saying? He's saying this. You're you, right? Right, Mark? You're you. Okay? Blessing? You're you, right? You find yourself... On this planet. you find, As A.W. Tozer says, you find yourself in consciousness, right? You just, you just realize you're here one day. You have no idea how you got here or why you're here, right? The Bible tells you. You begin to look around. You see beauty, joy, love, but you also see pain, suffering, and death. You don't understand. The Bible will tell you why both of these things are here. Your mind sees stunning complexity, design, symmetry, beauty, genius, and power, and the created order, and your visceral conclusion is God. He must be there. The Bible confirms it. The great designer creator is there. Your conscience testifies to the reality of absolute truth. There is good and there is evil. You know it in your soul and you see it in the world. The Bible confirms it. Your soul has a raging and the an inextinguishable thirst within that nothing in this world can satisfy the bible confirms that you have a thirsty soul and only one being in the cosmos can quench that thirst you know and i know and every human being on the planet knows i was made for more than this i was made for more than this this cannot be my home As C.S. Lewis says, how does he say it? Um, If I find in myself desires that nothing on earth can fill, what does he say? I must not be made for this planet, right? It's what the Bible confirms. The Bible connects all the dots, beloved. And I said it before, we have 10,000 questions. But what I want to say is, God is, and I'll say it again, God doesn't answer all our questions, but the Bible gives us all the essentials, right? It connects all of the essential and necessary dots. C.S. Lewis is right. For by the scriptures, for by Christianity, I can see the rest of the world and make sense of it. This is huge, beloved. This is huge. Last week in Psalm 94, we talked about the biblical truth that God is a God of perfect justice. I've already mentioned that to you. Who will settle all moral accounts? We have a huge problem. It's one of the one of the dots, right? We have a huge problem. We are alienated from our Creator. We have a sin problem. The Bible confirms it. What we know to be true in our heart, the Bible confirms. We have a sin problem. We need a Savior. We need a Savior. And we talked about last week that we've sinned against an eternal and infinite being, and such rebellion warrants eternal and infinite punishment. And God has revealed that in the Bible. And we tremble. And we are humbled by this biblical truth. While God is not reluctant to reveal His holiness, righteousness, hatred of sin, um, His justice, His judgment, and His eternal wrath to uh, in His revelation, the Bible, this is a major and repeated revelation of Scripture. It is not the predominant theme of Scripture. This is what I want... To, to hear, for you to hear me say after last week's sermon, O oh Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, render recompense. It's what we talked about last week. But that is a, a, a repeated and important theme of Scripture. But what is the predominant theme of Scripture? Someone tell me. We've sang about it already today. What is the predominant theme of Scripture? What is it? He's a Savior, right? God is a Savior. It's what we see in Psalm 114. He's saving a people for Himself, which is really a parable. Yes, it's a true story. It's a historical account. God bringing Israel out of Egypt. It's a true historical account. But really for us, uh, more importantly, it is like a parable. It's how God is bringing us out of the world. Amen? Amen? It's a picture of how God is bringing us out. The the whole Bible is one long redemptive exodus, right? God is bringing His people out of this world. That is the predominant theme. And I love to say it using Isaiah 45, 21 and 22. Just listen. And don't don't be alarmed. Psalm 114 is a very, very short psalm. We'll get through it pretty quick. You say, Jim, this is a long introduction. Yeah, I know. Don't worry about it. It's okay. Psalm 45, 21-22. God says, There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There's none except me. Listen to what Jesus says. Listen to, to, to what the Creator, Redeemer, God says. He says, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there's no other God who can save. It's why I preach the Gospel, beloved. He's a Savior. You don't deserve to be saved. I don't deserve to be saved. God should have just sent me on my way. But God is a Savior. I always love this passage in Isaiah 45. It starts in Genesis 3. I don't know that I've ever seen this before. I've been doing this for a long time, but it's like, this is why I love my job. I see new stuff every week. I see 25 new things when I study the Scripture every week. That's why you should be a student of the Scripture. It never gets old. It's always fresh. It's always wonderful. It's always beautiful. Jesus is always coming off the pages, right? It starts in Genesis 3. What happened in Genesis 3? It was the the fall of man. Man rebels against God. God comes in judgment. But He's already talking about a Savior. Genesis 3.15, He starts talking about Messiah. He comes in judgment, but He's already talking about a Savior. He's already talking about that. And I realized this week as I studied Psalm 114, which is the literal exodus of Israel out of Egypt, that from Genesis 3 on, we see God rescuing His people out of the world. Again, it's a picture of what God is doing in your life if you're a Christian tonight. It's a picture. uh, You're on exodus with God. Okay, God's bringing you out of the world. Right? With great power. You were once dead, But if you're a Christian tonight, you are alive. That didn't happen because you prayed a magic prayer or you did a church ordinance or you did the sacraments or you have perfect attendance at church or whatever. That happened because God does miracles in the lives of His people, beloved. He puts His power on display in the lives of His people. So Psalm 114... It's about the particular exodus of the Old Testament Jews out of Egypt around 1400 BC. It's the greatest redemptive event in the Old Testament. But what I want to say to you, you say, Jim, how does that affect me? Well, it affects you in this way God has historically shown himself to be a Savior. And God is today continuing to show Himself as a Savior as He brings His church out of the world, right? As He brings us out of the world and we are headed toward the new heaven and the new earth. It's the big picture paradigm of the Bible. It's, it's the world view of the Bible. God is bringing His exodus people out of a judged and fallen world. It's what Lewis is talking about. We broke ourselves. It's what Lewis is saying. We broke ourselves. We must have a Savior. We need a Savior. The Bible reveals Him. His name is Jesus. It's the thread you can pull all the way through Scripture. Scripture. The first time, I'm going to confess something. The first time I read Psalm 114, I thought, Lord, what can I do with that? I don't know what to do with that. Right? (laughs) Shame on me, right? (laughs) And I began to pray about it and think about it. And you see this invincible Savior who will not be stopped. It's one of the things that Psalm 114 is talking about. Nothing can stop God from His people. Nothing can get between God and His people. Nothing. It's one thing we learn from the actual Exodus. And it's one thing we're learning in the Exodus that you and I are in. Verses 1 and 2. Psalm 114. When Israel went forth from Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of strange language... Judah became His sanctuary. Israel, His dominion. So the exodus of Israel coming out of Egypt, it's a spectacular picture of God's universal redemptive story for His people. In the New Testament church era, God is bringing His people out of slavery and into freedom. Out of darkness into light. Out of mere existence and into a passionate, meaningful life. Out of despair and into joy. Out of the world and unto Himself. Beloved, you and I are on Exodus because God is a Savior. I think it's beautiful. I think it's beautiful. And it is powerful. So just a little background for those of you who are not familiar with the Old Testament story. Just a bit of background as we get into Psalm 114. I trust that most of you know the story. God calls Abraham out of Ur to leave his country, his relatives, and his home to go with God. God makes a covenant with Abraham to make him a great nation and to give him the promised land, which is Canaan. The problem with this is, as you know, his wife Sarah is barren. God says you will have a child. You'll have a son with Sarah. His name is Isaac. God, as He always does, He makes good on His promise. Abraham and Sarah have Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has twelve sons who become the tribes of Israel. Israel, as you know the story, we talked about it maybe five, six, seven weeks ago. I don't know now. That Jacob's, uh, pardon me, Joseph's oldest older brothers were jealous of Joseph, and they sold him into slavery down into Egypt. Right? Well, Pharaoh had a a dream that could not be interpreted, but Joseph was able to interpret the dream. Joseph ends up being vice president of. Egypt, because he saves them from the coming famine, right? Now the famine has hit, and Jacob has no food. Jacob and the boys have to go down to Egypt for food. Of course, they're reconciled with Joseph, and Israel is in Egypt. And some of you will remember Exodus 1 8. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know. Joseph. So years, has, years have passed. The Egyptians no longer remember Joseph and that Israel was a guest. And, and Egypt subjugates, right? Egypt subjugates Israel into slavery. That is some of the background. Now, the background on Moses, you know the story, right? He was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He was raised in, 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 in the palace as a, as a prince of Egypt. He was a powerful man. Highly educated man. He killed an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew. Right? Pharaoh hears about this and Moses must flee. Moses flees into the wilderness. He meets a shepherd girl, marries her, and settles down. Presumably to live there for the rest of his life, right? Well, then what happened? Who knows what happened? God came To Moses in a burning bush and turned his world upside down. Don't you you love it when God does that? (laughs) Don't you love it? When God comes and invites you into the uncareful life, right? Do you remember the account? Moses was pretty jazzed, man. He was jazzed. He says, He says, Yeah, this is great. I can't wait. I want to do this for you, Lord. Is that how it went? How did it go? Moses tried to excuse himself four times, at least four times. Finally, Moses relented. But I think the point here for you and you and I would be, you need to be ready when God comes to you. Listen, some of you think, well, this is my life and this is how it's going to be. Listen, I, I can give you first-hand account. Just because your life is like this, it doesn't mean it's always going to be like this. God may come to you tonight and turn your world upside down. What I'm saying to you is, the true believer, the true believer, you always need to be ready for God's call. You always need to be ready for what God's going to call you to do. You say, Jim, I don't know what the big call is. Well, okay. Then just obey the Lord right now today in the small things. Just keep doing the small things by faith, offering up to Christ for the glory of Jesus. Just do the small things And if there's a big thing for you, God will bring you to it. He will bring you to it. You don't have to worry about it. He'll show up at the right time and call you to the labor that He has for you. So Moses ends up in front of Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 5, demanding that Pharaoh let Israel go. What does Pharaoh do? Pharaoh says, no way that's going to happen. So parenthetically, I need to we need to talk about something here if you know the account. If you're familiar with the account. God tells Moses when He calls Moses that He will harden Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh will not let the people go. Now, this baffles um, many people. Many people stumble over this. So what are we to make of this? How are we to understand it? And I want you to... I want you to hear this because this is confusing for many people as they study through the Exodus account in the book of Exodus. Let me just put it to you this way. It's always God's prerogative to judge any man at any moment, any day for his sin. Right? It's God's judicial prerogative to harden a man's heart, who is in rebellion against Him. This is God's right. God has every right to do this. You know, justice, uh, you, you can expect justice from God because He's a just God. But what is grace? God, in one sense, is obliged to give us justice. But is God obliged to give any man grace? What is grace? What is it? What does the Bible clearly tell us? It's a free gift. It's a free gift. God can give grace or not give grace. He owes it to nobody, beloved. I know some people out in the world, naive people who don't know their Bibles, don't read their Bibles. Well, they think that God is Santa Claus and it's all going to be good in the end. Well, we need to read our Bibles, don't we? God has every right to harden any man's heart at any time. I want you to understand that. I want you to have some humility before God. God has every right to do that. He has every right. It's like the language in Romans 1. You remember the language. Men exchanged the glory of God for idols. Men exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Uh, God gave them over. Here it is. God gave Pharaoh over to what he wanted. Do you understand what I'm saying? God just lets Pharaoh go his own way. That's essentially what's being said here. God just lets Pharaoh have what he wants. Pharaoh will never submit to God. He would never submit to God. God says, have what you want. I harden your heart in your unbelief. You can have what you want, Pharaoh. You go your own way. This is one thing that's meant by the fact that God hardens the hearts of those who will not submit to Him. Who was Pharaoh? He was an arrogant, prideful narcissist. Thought He was a God Himself, right? He was a blasphemous idolater. God says, you can have your sin... I leave you in your sin. I will harden your heart. You've hardened your heart against Me. I will harden your heart. Listen, I just want you to understand God has every right to do this. It's why we should be mindful of Hebrews 3.15. Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. Pharaoh was in hearty agreement with God. Pharaoh would not submit to God. God hardened him in his sin. We need to have some humility with God, beloved. Close parentheses on that. So due to Pharaoh's repeated refusals to let Israel go, the Scripture says that Pharaoh hardened his heart multiple times and the Scripture says God hardened his heart multiple times. You can go do the analysis for yourself. But because of Pharaoh's refusal, uh, God sent ten plagues. He turned the Nile to blood the frogs, the lice, the flies, the disease, the boils, the hail, the locusts, the darkness, and finally the death of the Egyptian firstborn. One thing I love about the biblical God, He's always doing a billion things all at once, right? So what's He doing in Egypt? This is what God does every time the gospel's preached, right? Every time I preach the Gospel... God is saving. What else is God doing? And God is judging. I know as a preacher of the Gospel, both of those things are happening. It's what's happening with, 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 with Egypt, right? And with Pharaoh. God is saving His people and He's judging Egypt all at the same time. God does multitask. He does a billion things all at once. Interconnected things all at once. So God is judging Egypt as He saves a people for the glory of His name. And all of it is glory to God. Right? The whole world watches Egypt get crushed and makes much of the name of the Hebrew God, Yahweh. Right? And Yahweh is glorified in the deliverance of his people. God will be glorified. I love this psalm. And we'll talk some, we'll go through it, the rest of it in a minute. You can't get between God and His people, beloved. You'll get crushed. (laughs) <laughs> it's what happened. All these false teachers out here, all these false religions out here, all these secularists and atheists and agnostics out here. If they get between God and the people of God, God will crush them, beloved. It's what God will do. It made me think of John 18. You remember that great that 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 night when when. When the mob came for Jesus in John 18, remember there was there was a couple of hundred uh, soldiers in the cohort, Roman cohort. I think it's 600 guys. I forget now. They came to get Jesus in the garden, right? And and Jesus, remember what happened. Jesus says, "Who do you seek?" And he stepped between him and his men. Remember this? Go read the account. It always gives me goosebumps. I've always loved preaching John 18. Jesus steps between the soldiers and the men. They can't get the men. Because God is here. Amen? God is here. This is how God is with His people. You say, Jim, some Christians get martyred. That's right, they do! In obedience to God for the glory of Christ. But these people are so in love with God, they can be martyred for God this is no failing of God's power. It's in God's purpose to be a witness to the world just how beautiful Jesus is. And I don't have time to, to fully develop that, but you can't get between God and His people. You guys know Romans 8. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. God is a Savior. God is an invincible Savior. God is saving His people, beloved. Rejoice and give thanks. Don't you dare let this be small to you. Don't call yourself a Christian and let this be small to you. That God has loved you like this. That God is saving you out of the world. That you're on exodus with Him right now. You're on your way to the new heaven and the new earth right now. Don't let that be small to you, beloved. Don't let it be small Right now, Jesus is calling out a people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. It's happening right now. (laughs) It's happening in your life probably. You probably have people you're witnessing to, right? And God is calling people out. It's why we're here to be used of God to call people out. And as I said earlier, I think the Lord directed me to Psalm 114 because last week we talked about God the Judge. This week we're talking about God the Savior. Did you notice in verse 2, Judah became His sanctuary. I love this. Sanctuary, the word here simply signifies the presence of God with His people. Psalm 114 does not mention um, the Passover, which is in Exodus chapter 12. But you already know about the Passover, right? You know about the Passover. The Passover is a picture of whom? They, they put the blood over the, 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 the door lintel and on the, on the door posts, and the death angel passes over because of the blood of the Lamb. We know this is a picture of Jesus, the ultimate Savior, right? Who bleeds out to save a people for Himself. Beloved, we're all on Exodus. I, I, that's what I want you to hear. You're on Exodus. If you don't know you're on Exodus, you're probably not living your Christianity to the degree that God expects. Which is 100%. Which is radical. Right? You're on Exodus. God's bringing you out of the world. You're supposed to walk, talk, and act like you're leaving. Your friends and colleagues and and Co-workers and neighbors are supposed to see that you're different. You're, you look like you're leaving. You don't live like the rest of the world. You, you look different where you are different. And we talk about it all the time. We talk about it all the time. Verses 3-6 through The sea looked and fled. The Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams. The hills like rams. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back? O mountains, that you skip like rams? O heels like rams? Pharaoh let Israel go. But then the text says, and God hardened his heart one last time. And Pharaoh decides to pursue Israel. Okay? You know the story. The text says Pharaoh gets all of his army. Not just a part. He gets all of his army. And he is in pursuit of Israel. Israel is trapped against the Red Sea. And they cry out to Moses, Save us! Why did you bring us out here to die? Right? And then Moses says this. I'm just going to read it to you. I love it. Exodus 14, 13-15. Moses says, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight you. For you while you keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. I've always loved that verse. That verse always makes me laugh. Moses, why are you standing here talking to me? Tell them to go. Right? I love that. You know, we kind of sometimes are a little slow on the take up, right? Um, God says, Go! And then Exodus 14, 21-22 says this, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And you know the story. Pharaoh's army goes in after him. What happens? <laughs> Israel... Gets to the other side. God collapses the walls of water, and every Egyptian soldier perishes. God crushes his enemies. He crushes the enemies of his people. You remember the song that that I, I don't I don't I think it's three fifteen or three sixteen. No, that's obviously wrong. I'm sorry. I don't remember the the. Uh, the verse number. But you remember the, the, the Jews sang a song to God after the Red Sea event. And one thing they sang that I n- I've never forgotten that I've always loved, our God is a warrior. Our God is a warrior. A God who saves His people. Verse 3, the Jordan is turned back. What's he talking about here? Verse 3 of Psalm 114. What's he talking about? Okay, the sea fled... And the Jordan is turned back. Well, when uh, the Hebrews finally arrive at the Promised Land, they have to cross the Jordan at, at, uh, in high season. It's at flood stage. God says, let the priests go through with the Ark of the Covenant. And as they went through, the same thing happened. The, the, the current was cut off. In fact, the, uh, it says that the water stood up in a heap, Joshua 3. 16. So Israel was able to cross the promised land. Okay, I want you to see. A sea can't stop God from saving His people. A river can't stop God from saving His people, beloved. Okay? No Pharaoh can stop God. No army can stop God. When God determines to save a people, He does it. Do you understand what kind of Savior you have? (laughs) You're invincible. You're just like Him. What am I saying? I'm saying you're free to obey God as big as you dare. You have a few moments on this planet as compared to eternity. What are you going to do with it? Well, you have complete, total, utter liberty to obey God as big as you dare because He is a faithful warrior God. What is this about the mountains skipping like rams and the hills like lambs? What's that about? What's he talking Well, it, it, it's a reference to the presence of God with the people. You know, when, when God came down to give the law, the mountains, uh, there was lightning and thunder, and the mountains was, were, were quaking and shaking at the presence of Almighty God. It's just a picture of the presence of God among the people. Drop down with me real quick to verse 8. We'll come back to verse 7. Verse 8. Who turned the rock into a pool of water and the flint into a fountain of water? We've seen this many times in our uh, series on the psalm. God is sovereign over heaven and earth. Creation obeys its Creator. The laws of nature, science talks so much about, and it's fine, It's it's a... it's a useful way to talk about nature, but the laws of nature are nothing more than God's upholding of nature. They're, science is simply describing what God is doing, right? And so God sets aside the laws anytime it pleases Him. He can make water stand up like a wall. He can stop the current of a river. He can make the mountains dance. He does whatever He pleases in heaven and earth, as the Bible clearly Says, and rock can turn to water. It's in the it's in the text here, and flint into a fountain. Beloved God commands every atom. God commands every atom. When He, when he calls them, they stand at attention. Go read Job sometime, don't you? I love Job. I love Job. When God, God's describing the created order to Job, and how the created order responds to the Creator. Right? Except for the rebels in creation. Who are the rebels in creation? There are only two beings stupid enough to rebel against Yahweh. Who are they? Satan and man. You know when I hear the birds sing in the morning? That's a bird doing what a bird was made to do. Right? When I watch a flower bloom, it's just running on the software that God put inside that plant. But, but they're doing what God purposed for them to do, right? And I guess I'm going to ask you, are you doing what God purposes for you to do? Satan and the demons rebelled. And mankind has rebelled. Verse 7, Tremble, O earth, before the Lord, before the God God of Jacob, Psalm 114. Let the unbelievers tremble with fear. Let the believers tremble with joy. Let the whole earth tremble before this awesome God. Before this invincible Savior So the Old Testament exodus of Israel is a spectacular picture of what God is still doing. God is still bringing His people out of slavery and darkness and bondage. He's still doing it. He's doing it in your life if you're a Christian tonight. You are on exodus with God. This is not your home. You don't belong here. But you're here to be a witness to the God who is bringing you out. So what I want to say, Jesus is the invincible Savior. He cannot be stopped. He will save His people. It's the big picture paradigm C.S. Lewis is talking about in the Bible. The world's messed up. It's because we abused our free will. We did that. There's no happiness apart from God, as Lewis says. We get that. If we're honest with ourselves, if we look ourselves in the mirror, I don't care how great your sin may be, you look in the mirror and you know sin's not going to make it happen for you. Rebellion's not going to make it happen for you. Trying to live some autonomous lifestyle apart from your Creator, it's not going to happen for you. You know you need God. You know it. You know it. It's what Lewis is talking about. The big picture paradigm of the Bible. Lewis says, I believe the Bible as I believe that the sun has risen not only because I see it, but because by it, I can connect all the dots. All the dots that matter. The biblical worldview best explains the cosmos and the condition of man and the condition of my very own heart and the needs that I have in my heart to know my Creator, the biblical worldview. It's the only plausible, logical, rational, intellectually satisfying, aesthetically beautiful, and spiritually accurate worldview. So the Bible reveals who we really are, it reveals our most urgent need. We must have a Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus says, there is no other God besides Me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except Me. Turn to Me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God. There is no other. Jesus Christ is an invincible Savior. And I just want to close with this. Are you on Exodus with Him? You know, when you stand before your Maker, He's not going to ask you, were you a member of the International Church of Milan? He's not going to ask you that. Were you on Exodus with me? That's not scriptural. But it will be something like that. Were, were, you, were you on Exodus with me? Were you going out of the world with me? Did you choose me over the world? Did you hear my voice and answer? Did you obey me? None of us obey perfectly. We get that. But the sanctification is going on, right? Beloved, Jesus is an... He's an invincible Savior. That's the title of the sermon. Invincible Savior. I pray that you know Him. I pray that you know Him. If you have questions about Him, if you have questions about your salvation, I will be happy. I'm always available. I'm always available to talk to you. So, if you have any questions, let me know.